Joshua 1, 1 through 11. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way to you make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have it not commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Joshua 3, 1-5. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of, the, of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from this place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. It is good to see you. It is so good to start our week in worship. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me in your Bibles to that passage in Joshua chapter 1. I'm thankful for Sarah reading the text for us. It's quite a story, but it's going to really help us set the stage for where we're going over the course of the next several weeks as we really dive into this series that we're calling Experience Immeasurably More. And as we make our way through this series, our goal is to extend an invitation to everyone, to you and to me and to everyone who's going to join us to experience more of God in 2024, more of his presence and more of his power. We want to be uh, a church where we can experience all that God has for us. And God says it's immeasurably more than we could ever begin to ask or imagine. Maybe to say it more simply, we want everyone who calls Eastside home and everyone who God is drawing to himself through his church to experience God for themselves. Because let's be honest, church is a really poor spectator sport, isn't it? The truth is that an incredible experience is infinitely more satisfying than the best seat on the sidelines. I was thinking that just this, this, uh, this weekend as we are entering one of the most exciting times in the, in the year for sports. It's playoff football. We have the best players on the best team competing for the ultimate prize, the Lombardi Trophy. And I was watching a game last night and I was thinking that no matter how comfortable my seat is or how big my TV is, the 
the, uh, the best seat on the sideline just doesn't compare to being in the game. I know that because as I was watching the game, it was something like 30 degrees below zero and I was sitting comfortably on my couch. But even more than that, after the game, I didn't really have a vested interest in it, but I was excited about the game. When the game seemed like it was out of hand, I just turned it off and I went to bed. And the truth is, no matter how invested I am in a game, it doesn't matter. Like, I can just turn it off and go to bed. The players have the exhilarating experience of being in the game. And if it's true for something as simple as sports, it's even more true when it comes to faith and following Jesus. That we want to be in the game. We have the opportunity to live life on purpose for the prize promised in Christ Jesus. That's what I want, and that's what I want for you. And so that's our goal, that over the course of the next six weeks, we're going to lay out a series, how can we experience God for ourselves? And to answer that question, we have six core values that we hold very closely as a church. We hold these core values closely because they're not aspirational values about who we want to be or how we want to live. Our six core values at Eastside are how we have experienced God at work in our lives and through our church. We believe because we've experienced that when we lean in and take action, we get to watch God perform miracles in and through his church. We know that if we live open-handed lives and cultivate restorative community and reflect glory to God, we will experience God for ourselves. And so I'd love to say that these six core values are proprietary to us or that we've trademarked them, but the truth is our core convictions come straight from the pages of God's word. They're timeless truths taken from scripture. They're available to everyone are available to anyone, and we want to invite everyone to experience God for themselves through these six core values. We're going to start today with our first core value. It is simply lean in. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to breeze kind of through the text that Sarah read, read for us. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, He said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And so we pick up the story right there. They pick up the story of God's people in the midst of one of the most significant leadership transitions in history, the transition from Moses to Joshua. And it's significant for several reasons, but what happened during Moses' lifetime? God rescued his people from slavery. The people of Israel, they were established into a people within the confines of the land of Egypt. And they were enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. And so all that God's people knew was slavery. But God raised up Moses. He brought him ultimately before Pharaoh, inflicted a series of plagues on Pharaoh to demonstrate his power over Pharaoh until Pharaoh finally let the people of God go. And Moses, he led the people of God out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it was significant because through Moses, God brought his people salvation. And so when we read the start of Joshua, it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. We recognize all that God accomplished for God's people through the life and ministry of Moses, that through Moses, they found their salvation. They found freedom. 
But it's also interesting that it just simply says Moses is dead. Like that time has come and gone. And then to Joshua, he says, Now, therefore, get up, arise, and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Moses is dead, now it's time to get up. God was ready to lead his people to inherit the land he had prepared for them, to experience it, experience it for themselves. And this stood out to me as I was studying this week because I wonder how much time do we spend celebrating, looking back on what God has done. Now, I say that because like how much time, if we aren't careful, I think we can spend a lot of time celebrating our salvation. And I want to be very clear, it is worth celebrating. It is the most significant moment in our life when we make God Lord of our life and put our faith in him. But if we aren't careful, we can spend so much time celebrating our salvation, looking back, that we miss what God has saved us for. We miss what God wants to accomplish in us and through us, that God is always at work to accomplish immeasurably more. At the point of the story, this Old Testament story, we see God at work for his people. He's prepared for them an inheritance that is immeasurably more than they could wrap their mind around. The Bible would describe it symbolically as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place that God had prepared for his people, where they could experience his provision and his protection for them, where they could live their life on purpose, for the purpose for which God had called them, which was ultimately to bring people, to be the people, to bring Jesus to the world. And so as I read this and I think about our life, I want to be grateful for all that God has done, but I always want to be look forward, looking forward to what God wants to do. We're picking up this story with the people of God at this leadership transition where they're deciding, are we going to cling to what's always been as they wander in the wilderness, or are we going to follow God into the immeasurably more he's prepared for us? Well, then the question is kind of in the back of my mind. Like, as I read this story, how do I know that God will be faithful in our story? Because we aren't the people of Israel, right? We're the people of God, but God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And something I've learned about God is God makes future promises in the past tense. The next verse, verse 3, says, Every place, God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot, and it says, will tread. Every place that you're going to walk, every place that your foot will tread upon, I have given past tense to you just as I promised Moses. Leave that on the screen if you would. But the next verse says, From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. God says to Joshua, and this verse has always caused me to just kind of stop in my tracks and stay in the awe of God, that before they ever step into the promised land, God has already guaranteed it, that God makes future promises in the past tense, that we might not have a promised land, but we have a host of promises, promises to us as the people of God, promises that we as followers of Jesus can and will experience God's power and presence in our life. Jesus would say to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he says to his followers, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. In James chapter 4, he says, draw near to me and I promise that I will draw near to you. 
that God has promises prepared for his people and God can be trusted to follow through because God makes future promises in the past tense. One of the most significant and powerful of those promises is the promise of God's presence with his people. Verse 5 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then he says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I want to stop right here as we study the Bible. We always want to be faithful to the text. And one of the problems that when we follow it, when we study the text, is if we're not careful, we can claim other people's promises. You know what I'm saying? Like, wouldn't it be foolish to claim a promise that is not ours? Like, if you attended a wedding and the officiant up front says, you promised to have and to hold from this day forward, and the groom says, I do. Like, that promise isn't for everybody in attendance, is it? That would be foolish. It's for one person. And God makes specific promises all throughout Scripture. The promise of the promised land, that was for Joshua and the people of Israel. But the promise of God's presence is for all people who put their faith in God. This promise, uh, God always promises his presence would be with his people. Do you remember Jesus' last words to his disciples after the crucifixion and the resurrection? Before he ascended back to the Father's right hand, he famously said in Matthew chapter 28, he says, And I will be with you, or I am with you always to the end of the ages. Well, we're in the end of the ages, right? We're, we're living under the promise that Jesus made to his people. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews would later echo that same thing when in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he said, For he said, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. God is a God who makes future promises in the past tense, promises that his presence will be with his people and his power will work through his people. And I say all of that before we get to our first core value, because like the people of God in the Old Testament, we are a people looking forward to the promises that God has in store for us, that we would experience that very same power, that we'd experience that very same presence in our life. And then the first thing that God says after this incredible promise was proclaimed to his people in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 is this. He says, only be strong and very courageous. And so he's talked about all the things that he is going to do for his people. And then to his people, he says, only, here's what you guys have to do. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. And what he says is that when we do things God's way, things always go better. Now, they don't always go easier. In fact, they often don't go easier, but they always go better when we do things God's way. Verse 8, this book of the law which was all the scripture they had available to them at that point in their story. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that was written in it. Then I'll make your way prosperous. And so what does he say? The first thing that God says after all of these promises are proclaimed to his people is simply this, spend time with God in his word. The way we say it is we lean in. We want to spend time with God. He says, the book of the law, these scriptures that you have shall not depart from your mouth. You shall talk about these things as you go about your day. 
And what else do we know? We know that Jesus would say that out of the abundance of the son, one's heart, her mouth speaks. It tells us the law of God, the word of God, the Bible should be so established and so ingrained in our hearts that it overflows from everything we do. Before they ever took a step into the promised land, God said to his people, he said, spend time with God. Immerse yourself in my word. Then you'll know which way to go. Our core values, and we'll see this over the course of the next six weeks, they're in a particular order on purpose because we don't want to take action and start looking for miracles before we've spent time with God discerning the direction that he would have us go. But as the word of God settles into our heart, it changes our hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This one verse tells us so much about what God's word can do. First of all, it's living and active. The word of God isn't some ancient relic for us to stand uh, in applause. It's alive and well because it is the word of the living God. And this is something that sets the scripture apart from all other texts we like to read and study. That it is alive and well. It is still speaking to our soul to this day. And we know that because every time we read the scripture, it says something to us, doesn't it? It's the only book we can go to seven times, and on the eighth time, we see something new and something significant stand out. We could read our favorite novel over and over and over again, and we might notice a detail here and there, but there's not some emerging truth that jumps out of the pages for the first time and changes our life. But when we spend time with God in his word, every time we study his word, something new stands out because the word of God is living and active. It is still at work in our lives, shaping us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Symbolically, it says the word of God can pierce right through the physical world to carve our, the sin away from our heart. It reveals and refines our motives. It turns our affections for God. Do you know what it's like when you spend time with God in his word and all of a sudden, over time, you slowly start to become more like God? It's because the word of God gets down into our heart and it changes our affections and it allows us to cultivate a desire for more of God and eventually it changes our action. And that's also because the word of God reveals the heart of God. I think we make a mistake myself included, sometimes we think about the Bible like it's a list of rules. And there are a list of rules for us in Scripture, even though sometimes we don't even understand how those are supposed to be applied. But it's not just a list of rules, and it's not uh, a collection of memory verses like maybe we grew up with. The Word of God reveals the heart of God because it's the story of God sending a son into the world to save his people from the consequences of their sin setting them free from its control, its consequences, and its power so that they might have a restored relationship with him. It continues to sanctify us so that we might live the life that we were created to live. God's character is on display and our calling to walk with him is clear in Scripture. We spend so much time in the Word because it reveals God to us. One pastor says it this way, the Word of God is both a map and a mirror. 
The word of God serves as a mirror because it reveals and refines our heart against who God is. We know this because it seems like no matter where we drop ourselves in scripture, we see how incredible and holy God is. And then as we stand in awe of God, we recognize how far short we've fallen. Man, I'm worse off than I realize. But we also see God closing the gap and restoring the relationship through the work of Jesus. It's a mirror revealing who we are compared to God. At the same time, it's a map because it tells us how we are to live. It lays out for us the framework and the foundation of a relationship of a life lived with God. Paul, the apostle, would write uh, several letters, but one letter to Timothy, who was a disciple of his. A young man he was leading as he served the church, and he would say this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture, all the Bible, all the word of God is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training us in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All scripture, Paul says to Timothy, is breathed out by God. All scripture is the word of God. I don't know if we can wrap our minds around this or if we think about it often enough. I know that I often take it for granted that in this nice leather-bound Bible, we have the word of God, the creator of the universe for his people. It's available to us, his wisdom, his insight, his purpose, and his instruction telling us how we are to live, which is ironic because so much of our time is devoted to trying to figure out how to live, isn't it? Like, who should we be? Where should we live? What should we do? Who should we date? Who should we marry? What should our purpose be? And over and over and over again, we're asking God, who should I be? Or trying to figure out rather who we should be when God gave us clear instruction. That we're trying to figure out how we should live our life when God has given us instruction for our life. I don't know about you, but our, our home, we are still putting together Christmas presents. Anyone else? I mean, yeah, most responsible families are done by now, but we have two daughters and generous grandparents. And so our kids got more presents than I could possibly put together in the week following Christmas. And so it's like a couple weeks later, and I'm still putting it together. And as much as I love my girls, like it drives me nuts because on the, the, um, the box of every present they receive is this perfect picture of what it's supposed to look like. And when you take it out of the box, it's in shambles, right? None of the pieces go together. There's no stickers on anything. And it's just this mess of plastic. And it's up to dads to figure out how all the pieces fit together, where the stickers go, when to put the batteries in, how to mute the thing so it's not so loud all the time. And, like, and I get so frustrated. And then I finally realized that every gift comes with an instruction manual from the people who created it. And if I just put my pride aside, things go together so much simpler if we'll just open the instructions. The truth is, that is much of what our life is like. We can look at our life with this perfect picture of what we want it to look like, clean and new and polished and covered in perfect stickers. But if we're honest, like we look at our life and it's much more like the inside of the package. It's in shambles and we don't know how it fits together. And we can lay out all the pieces and we can start looking around. And we're not complete morons. And so we can start putting some pieces together. But we end up with leftover pieces or stickers that don't fit or Paw Patrol stickers on a Barbie thing. Or it's all kinds of problems. But the truth is God, our creator, 
the creator of heaven and earth, was gracious enough to give us his word so that we don't have to figure out how to live life alone and we don't have to figure out who God is. He makes himself known to us through his word. Here's the thing I found. My conviction is there is no substitute for spending time with God. Like there's no substitute for spending time with God. At Eastside, we say it this way. Our first core value is we lean in. We spend time with God. We lean into his word. We lean in in prayer and we lean in in fasting because there's no substitute for spending time with God. And I'd love to say as we uh, start on this uh, endeavor to experience God for ourselves that we've cracked the code on some overly complex solution that only we have. But the truth is the answer is overly simple and it's tried and true. It's simply spend time with God. How are you doing spending time with God? Like, honestly, if someone were to ask you, like, how are you doing? When, when someone comes to me and they say this immeasurably more that you're talking about, this experiencing God for yourselves, like, I'm not seeing that in my life. And they're looking to me for solutions. I've got to this place where I always ask the first question, how are you doing spending time with God? And almost always, it's, oh, I'm not really doing that. It's like, well, that's always where we start. We spend time with him. If we're not growing closer to God, it's because we aren't spending time with him. Think about this if you were to zoom out a little bit. In your, your interpersonal relationships, your relationships with friends, how would they be going if you weren't spending time together? Like if you had a friendship that was once a close friendship, but now it feels far away and you haven't talked in forever and you can't figure out what's wrong, the question I would ask is like, are you spending time together? Are you talking with one another? If not, are you even friends anymore? Are you claiming something that once was? There's no substitute for spending time with God. And I'm not just talking about reading the Bible. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Bible because the Bible is the foundation for our understanding of who God is and our beliefs. And we live our life with the Bible as our foundation. But Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Let's we'll flip ahead. The way Sarah read this text for us is part of chapter 1 and part of chapter 3 because chapter 2 takes place kind of at the same time. And we don't have time to cover all of that. Uh, But he picks up the story right here as the people are ready to cross into the promised land in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, which is set apart yourselves for God, with God. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. That verse has stood out over the years as incredibly significant. Because if we're honest, we all want to see God do wonders among us. 
Like, if we're honest, we all want to see God at work in our lives. We want to see God restore relationships. We want to see God draw our friends and our families near to him so we can spend eternity with them. We want to see God heal our marriages. We want to see God make our money accomplish more than just buying more stuff. We want to see God give us deep and meaningful restorative friendships. We want to see God use us to make an impact beyond us. The Bible says if God's going to work in our midst, we have to spend time with him today. Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourself. Set aside time to spend time with God. Separate yourselves from the distractions of this world because tomorrow the Lord's going to do wonders among you. But the first step is spending time with him. How can we expect God to direct our day if we don't start our day with him in prayer? And before you roll your eyes or write me off because we talk about it all the time, think about it. Like, we want God to perform wonders in our life. We want him to free us from sin or free us from anxiety. We want God to set us free so that we can serve him. We want to lead a life of significance. But very rarely are we willing to start our day with him. The reason this is our first core value is we think it's first in order. But at the same time, I have experienced firsthand the power of powerful prayer time, personal prayer time. It's really what changed my life. I grew up in a great church and a great family. I knew so much about God. I went to Bible college. I learned all of these things about who God was. But it wasn't until I made a regular rhythm in my life of starting my day with prayer that I really got to know God for myself. This God that I'd grown up learning so much about, I started, my, I started spending the first part of my day in prayer, and all of a sudden I started to get to know God. Struggles that were once struggles in my life became easier because the Holy Spirit was then at work within my life. And that's not just my story. What I love about that story is it is so many of your stories that we've seen God go to work in our life when we spend time with him. Now, I've said, I've shared it so many times, but I'm going to say it again. Just practically speaking, what does it look like to start our day with prayer? We start our day with prayer um, so that God can guide the rest of our day, right? We start our day with prayer. We pray throughout the day, but we start our day with prayer so that before we get going, God is directing the day before us. I, I say it all the time. It's relatively simple. It's like I wake up and the first thing I do is make coffee, because in my life, the Holy Spirit always speaks more clearly when I'm well caffeinated. That's just true. But then I open my prayer journal before I even open my Bible, and I start my prayer life this way. I say, God, I'm so thankful. I praise him for who he is. Would you make yourself known to me through your word? I don't even just jump into the Bible as much as I love the Bible, because I want the Holy Spirit to help me see what God wants me to see. I want to be able to read the same story I've read so many times in something new. Speak to my soul so that I might look more like Jesus. God, would you open my eyes to see the things that you would have me say? If there's something weighing on my mind that's keeping me from giving all my attention to God, I ask God that he would lift it off so that I might focus on him. And then I, I put the prayer and I open the Bible. And I read whatever's next in my Bible reading. And I just read it and I read it and I read it until something speaks to me. Then I close the Bible or may lead it open. I may need a, a resource of some kind to help me understand what I'm reading, maybe a study Bible or a commentary or even a Google search, if you're careful, can help us understand and make sense of what God is trying to say. But then I, read, then I spend time praying in the journal again, God, this is what I've heard you say. Is this what you wanted me to hear? God, how do I apply it? I think this is what I can do today. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray. And here's the thing that we might not realize. We try to model this every week in our worship service. 
people ask me all the time, like, why do you guys do order of worship the way you do it? Is it just because you love it? Not necessarily. It's because we want to train ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. So I don't know if you notice how we do worship every week the same way. We start with two songs. There's a call to worship. We wake up, and the first thing we do is we praise God. You can take this order of worship from a Sunday morning. You can apply it to Monday morning or Tuesday morning. We wake up, and we make much of God. And the more we make much of God, it's the more we realize that we fall far short of God's perfect standard. And so we have this time of confession in our worship because before we get out of bed in the morning, we're confronted with the fact that we've fallen short of God's perfect standard, so we confess our sins. But then we're quickly reminded of God's grace that he accomplished for us through Jesus on the cross, which is our time of communion. And that leads us back to worship, a response that, God, you are good. And then we just open the Bible, right? That's why we have a scripture reading. Before I ever stand up here and try to unpack it, we want to let the word of God speak for itself so the people of God can be blessed by its reading. And then certainly we try to apply it. That's what the sermon is. It's trying to take what God has said, this truth that we cling to, and bring it to our everyday life. And then it leads us back to worship. However you format it, however you format it, it's foundational that we start our day leaning in to God through prayer and through Bible reading. I know as I say this, some of you are thinking about, wouldn't that be nice, but I don't have time. The truth is, like, I don't buy that anymore. I used to say, like, people say, like, you know, I just don't have time. Well, I don't believe it because we all have time to make coffee, right? No one starts today without coffee. We all make time to brush our teeth, like I hope, right? We all make time for breakfast, We all make time to scroll social media. We all make time to watch the news or whatever we do. The truth is we're not making time because it doesn't matter that much to us. Here's the thing. If you want to multiply the intensity and effectiveness of your prayer life, make time and add fasting. And for the sake of time, speaking of time, I ran out of time. We're going to talk about fasting later. But here's my challenge this week. Just one week. If you're struggling to lean in, skip breakfast this week. Now, some of you are like, oh, no, skip breakfast this week. And use that time and fast one meal and use that time to spend time with God. Now, I know I've talked to some of you that you've got to be at uh, the coffee shop where you work at like 4.15 a.m. So you've got like five good minutes in the morning to spend time with God. Use your five minutes. Some of you have a 15-minute drive on the way to church, and you fill it with a podcast or listening to music. Use that time to pray. Turn the noise down. Consecrate yourselves, because tomorrow we believe the Lord is going to do wonders among us. Fast breakfast this week. Spend that time with God and see if God doesn't make himself known to you in a significant way. Lean in. God makes incredible promises to his people all throughout scripture. One of my favorites is in James chapter 4, verse 8. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the church simply, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now that seems so simple, but he doesn't say draw near to God and pray that he draws near to you. And he doesn't say, draw near to God and hope that he draws near to you. He doesn't even say, draw near to God and cross your fingers and say a prayer and jump through a hula hoop and hope that God shows up. He says, if we draw near to God, the promise of God is that God will draw near to his people. If God is not drawing near, it's not because God moved far, but because we stopped spending time with him. God 
wants to speak to his people. So much so that he sent his son into this world so that we might see God in this world. I want to finish reading this scripture over you. John chapter 1, it says this. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John is saying that Jesus and the word are one and the same. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I wonder how many times we seek life without leaning in to the God who gives life. Verse 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That God's light cannot be overcome by anything this world throws at it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but the light came to bear, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I share that with you because I think something significant takes place when we lean in and spend time with God that we often take for granted. That when we still our minds and spend time with God, we get a glimpse of his glory because the word of God points to the work of God through the person of Jesus. If we want to experience immeasurably more, our first step is simple. Lean in. I want to challenge you this week. Fast breakfast, spend time with God, and see what God says. Father, we are so thankful for the goodness and grace of the Heavenly Father who allows us to gather together this week and every week as your people to sit under the authority of this word. That, Father, we can start our week together in worship, corporately leaning in to hear what you have to say to your people. Father, I pray that as we go from here, these rhythms that we rehearse on a weekly basis will become the rhythm of our everyday life, that we would start our week in worship, that we would start our day in worship, that we would hear you speak clearly through your word, that we would spend time in prayer so that we may take what you say to us through the word and your spirit and put it into work in our life. Father, we want to experience you. We know that faith in church we're never meant to be a spectator sport, so we're grateful for the invitation to experience immeasurably more. Father, we're thankful for the promises that you have made to us in the past tense. Father, help us as a church and as individuals to draw near to you this week. We're so thankful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.